Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. We are glad to have you here today for another virtual podcast. And uh, we're still all in lockdown. We're still at home, but we can uh, tell by the way he's dressed that things have gotten a little worse out there in West Hartford. And, New Newington. Uh, Newington, that's right. <laughs> gotta make sure that's right. We got to make sure that the complete lockdown out there, and everybody's got their their nosegays. And uh, but Glenn Sunshine is with us. Uh, he's he's not going to stop. Not going to let a little uh, coronavirus stop him from uh, attending the podcast. Hey, it helps with social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, why don't we introduce ourselves? And uh, Glenn, I know that's awfully hot. Yeah. So. Feel free to take it off. <laughs> we might need to all order some of those here soon, so you, you'll have to let us know where you where you get your supply before it uh, takes off. Amazon.com. Where else? <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, part of the show might be good to get a little bit of the background on the nosegay. You know, mm-hmm. in case people don't realize that that was actually a technique, uh, kind of an old conceived technique. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in, with plague. <laughs> yeah. In in the 14th century, they um, when plague hit, they asked the theology professors at the University of Paris, who were as close as they had to scientists, where plague came from. And there was a bunch of astrological stuff that they threw in. But what it came down to is they said it was bad air. And so, in order to purify the air, people would put flowers on their shoulders or herbs or something like that. And then when you pass something that smelled bad, you just stick your nose down in it. That's actually the origin of the corsage. Um, <laughs> really? I didn't know the corsage oh, yeah. came from that. Yeah, corsage comes from that. But in the 17th century, they had these things that were called plague doctors. It's an outfit where you were covered from head to foot. You had the long beak-like thing um, right. filled with herbs and stuff like that that you would breathe through to theoretically purify the air so that's actually where that comes from i apologize for the cat in the background <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's right so this was like the precursor to the modern uh, surgical mask that we see hazmat day. suit that's right <laughs> <laughs> you know there's actually there's actually a uh, a cartoon a, actually a, a graphic novel by my one of my favorite uh, uh cartoon or, or comic book artist mobius the, mm-hmm. the, the famous french cartoonist who did all the concept art for alien and you know for, for blade runner and stuff like that but he has a book he has a he has a a, a a graphic novel called adena or adena eden with an a on the end and there are these characters who are wearing that those outfits and at the time when i first you know read this as a kid i had no clue what these people were dressed up in these goofy outfits and <laughs> and uh, he actually was just drawing a medieval costume you know, to, to, to sort of make the, 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 the whole atmosphere of this strange planet even weirder. Yeah. I actually always thought it looked rather like Spy versus Spy. Right. Oh, yeah, right. Right from <laughs> Mad Magazine. Yep. Oh, those are great. Those are great. Yeah. Anyway, well, but welcome to the Theology Pugcast. <laughs> Pardon our little trip down memory lane here. But uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester. I used to teach philosophy, and uh, I written some things. So, Tom, why don't you tell us who you are? Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, teaching both at online Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and uh, I think online for a while. 
<laughs> right, right. Yeah, we just got word handed down from the authorities that we're we're still going to be doing this through mid-May at least. So wow. yeah. anyway, so and Glenn? Glenn Sunshine, professor of European history at the virtual Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Well, uh, we had a tr we had a great show last week with uh, Dr. Matthew T. Dickerson of uh, Middlebury College, and we were talking about Tolkien. And so as we were thinking about how to follow up on that episode, uh, since it was your day, Glenn, you had the, the subject of the day, you proposed what? I thought it would be interesting to take a look at one of the things that Tolkien and Lewis both talked a lot about, which is the idea of northernness. Yeah. By which they meant that, well, they had sort of an affinity with, uh, with Norse and Germanic culture. Uh, you see this in the writers of Rohan, who really speak Old English. Uh, there's a lot more that can be said there. But, but it, they were really heavily influenced by the Icelandic sagas. Uh, the names of the dwarves, for example, in The Hobbit come from uh, one of the Eddas. Uh, so I thought it might be interesting to take a look at some of the revivals of uh, Germanic and Norse paganism uh, that are in the world today in the form of various, well, they call them heathen movements. That's actually the term that they use for themselves. They call themselves heathens. So I thought it might be interesting to take a look at, at um, Germanic neo-paganism. Okay, well, now, you know, where this naturally goes in the minds of some people anyway, and that is to the subject of, you know, the alt-right and, you know, white supremacy and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But that's not necessarily what we're talking about, although it touches on it, right? Right. There, when you're dealing with the heathen world, there are a number of different ways that they've been um, uh, divided up. But you have some that are very anti-racist, anti-ethnic and all of that sort of thing. Uh, you've got that on the one hand. Uh, but on the other hand, you have others that emphasize ethnicity as an essential part of all of this. And within that group, there is a subgroup that sees ethnicity very strictly in terms of race and uh, really buys into a lot of the kinds of ideas Hitler had about Aryan racial superiority and so on. So, yes, there is clearly a white supremacist element within heathenry, but it isn't the only thing that's there. Right, right. So uh, go ahead and, and get us going here, Glenn. Okay, so let, let's, uh, let's start off with, with just some terminology. Uh, what we're looking at here is a broad movement called neo-paganism. That's the term that we typically use for it on the outside. Inside, they don't like that because neo implies that it's not genuine in their minds. Uh, but it really points to the fact that there is a discontinuity between ancient paganism and modern paganism and that what we're doing is at best an attempted reconstruction and modification of what they used to do in the past. Uh, Neo-paganism generally refers to a revival of pre-Christian and pre-Judaic religions from Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, and so on. And there's a huge range of these things. Um, in general, neo-paganism divides into two categories, uh, which you could call now, they, there are different terms that are used for it. I like eclectic and ethnic. The eclectic neo-pagans are your people like your Wiccans, um, they're probably the most common, that 
are attempting a reconstruction of, well, not exactly a reconstruction, some sort of revival perhaps of ancient pagan practices, but they're drawing it from a whole bunch of different sources. So they will use Renaissance magic texts, they will use potentially the Kabbalah, they'll use Indian ideas coming through Hinduism, whatever, anything that they find that looks interesting, useful, or cool, they will adopt. So even the Kabbalah, I mean, we're talking about Jewish there, group. Here. There are some that there are some that even go in that direction. So those are your eclectics. Your what I would describe as your ethnic neo pagans are the ones who are trying to reconstruct a specific ancient pagan tradition. And I've I've got a former student who is um, who worships ancient Egyptian gods. This would be an example of that. Um, more commonly, you will find people who are trying to do druidry, you know, from the ancient Celtic tradition, or the heathens. You know, that would be the other uh, the other thing that I've run into a lot actually here in um, in Connecticut. So let's take a look specifically at the heathens because that was the theme I wanted to start with. Well, just as a as a as a note, I noticed that your cat got particularly excited when you mentioned Egyptians because you know, <laughs> yeah. cats were worshipped. Yeah, and he's never. And you can hear you can hear a cat right now. <laughs> yep, yeah. he's trying I, to get you not to forget. What, what, <laughs> what, what, what I would really like is to live in a house without a cat, but <laughs> uh, this is not an option at the moment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the other thing is Diefenbachia. You know, it paralyzes your vocal cords. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and Lynn just pointed out he doesn't he isn't really yelling unless I'm talking. So, <laughs> um, he's the kind of cat that thinks he's in an opera. He has to sing an aria before he does anything. <laughs> um, anyway, um, <laughs> as 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 far as the. Yeah, we really need to get back to a pub. Um, <laughs> as, as, back, back to heathenry. Uh, as, far, as far as that goes, heathenry is a good illustration, I think, of some of the problems that for neo-pagans. First of all, we know next to nothing about Old Norse beliefs or Old Norse worship. We have a lot of their myths and things like that, but we really don't know what they did in their religion. Uh, as a result, they'll go to Icelandic sources like the Prozetta, the Elder Edda, things like that. They'll look at the sagas for hints. Uh, they get some information from archaeology. They'll even go to actually Christian sources like Beowulf and the Nibelungenlied in order to just glean anything that they can find about Germanic folklore and perhaps religious practices. <clears throat> So the net result is they really don't have a lot to go on. And in their attempts to reconstruct it, a lot of it ends up being, well, as is the case for many neo-pagans, a lot of it ends up being very specifically anti-Christian. A lot of neo-pagans, for example, start off by growing up in, in at least nominally Christian homes and rebel against it, and that's how they end up in neo-paganism. Um, so now we're increasingly getting second, third generation pagan families, so that's less true. But they very clearly, if you look at the heathen stuff that's out there, they very clearly identify themselves as being not Christian or anti-Christian. So, for example, uh, I've run t-shirts that people wear that say, better a wolf of Odin than a lamb of God. Yeah. Um, it, 
A real quick uh, note of history. I, I know in, in uh, you know, sort of the academic world of, of influential ideas, Herder, H-E-R-D-E-R, -E the German um, philosophical, he, he was really influential basically in giving us hermeneutics um, and the notion of empathy with history. But one of the emphases that he really put into play, especially out of that German academic world, was this return to the language of a people to the stories of a people, to the religious consciousness of a people. And he thought that it was kind of, he resisted the reductionism of, of a, to, a, a total picture kind of enlightenment because mm. it, it really tried to flatten everything. So the encouragement was for people to return. So actually in Finland, uh, you have them returning and actually they had big issues with Russia, but then returning to their language and they got it from their story. So they had to actually go back to the places where those stories were told to kind of recapture the language. It became a part of national identity. Right. And so Christianity was almost seen as part of that illegitimate totalizing project of the Enlightenment that actually really took away the voice of creation um, and, and its contribution, basically, rather than considered its significance. So I don't know if this played into the rise of these as reactionary movements, but I know he was very influential. As a matter of fact, I would say in Germany, what ended up happening with the kind of national socialism and this kind of neo-return to German gods and, and things like that was influenced by Herder's thought. Yeah, there, there's no question about that. And actually, I would argue that a lot of what's going on, particularly with the ethnic neo-pagans, or they're sometimes called reconstructionist pagans, uh, what's going on with them in a lot of ways is a very, very much a reaction to the Enlightenment. Uh, there is a kind of romanticism that exists yeah. in most of these groups. Uh, interestingly enough, a lot of the eclectic pagans have this view of a golden age in the future, the, you know, this new wave of spirituality that's going to come and that's going to transform the world, whereas the Reconstructionist pagans have a romanticized view of the past. You know, the Reconstructionists are always looking backwards. The eclectic does that to some extent, but many of them are really more focused on the future. But just like Romanticism was a reaction against the Enlightenment, I think in a lot of these Reconstructionist pagans, that's exactly the same sort of thing that you're seeing. Now, now with, with both of these movements, Glenn, um, so often uh, they're more humane uh, value sort of uh, aff affirmations. Uh, owe something to Christianity without being willing to own up to the fact <laughs> that they owe something to Christianity. Um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, like, in, you know, with, with Lewis uh, in, in that, that hideous strength when he brings back Merlin, I think we talked about this last week, you know, Merlin shows up and he's not at all like the, ex, you know, what they expected, you know, right. it, you know, there, there's this, you know, the nice people, you know, the National Institute for, uh, for Coordinated Experiments, they, they actually wanted to bring Merlin in and they had this idea that he was going to be sort of a certain cast or certain kind of person and they were tremendously uh, disappointed or... <laughs> or or they would have been if they actually recognized them or, or found right. them. Right, yeah. right. But he doesn't exactly fit in with Ransom's group either. Right, right. He's got a very different ethos. Right. Which is one of the things I thought... One of the many things I thought was brilliant about the way Lewis did that. 
Yeah. The, the best example of that that I, I would point to actually is less about real heathenry as it exists today and more sort of pop culture images of it. Um, my favorite example is actually the movie Thor. In the Marvel comic movie Thor, Thor tries to provoke a war with the Frost Giants. Odin slaps him down. Odin is a peacenik. He doesn't want any kind of war or anything like that. And to teach Thor self-sacrifice and to get away from all of this aggressive warmongering and things like that, he's stripped of his power and sent to Earth until he, he becomes worthy again of having his power, which only happens when he lays down his life right. for friends. <laughs> what we see there is a Christianization of Norse mythology. The fact of the matter is... Odin was a warmonger. Odin provoked wars constantly. And in fact, if he really liked you, he would provoke a war so that you would get killed during the war (laughs) so that he could take you into Valhalla. I mean, this is... (laughs) The idea of Odin as a pacifist is ludicrous. Right, right. right. The idea of Thor needing to sacrifice himself and all of this sort of thing to you know, in order to be worthy of being a god? Nope. That is not Norse. Well, this kind of gets us back to... to their credit, um, though, one second. To their credit, the heathens recognize that. They okay. recognize that as a Christian <laughs> of, the, of the myth. But Marvel Comics evidently doesn't. Or they're just very savvy and know what sells. <laughs> yeah, what was <laughs> But, you know, getting, getting to the... Uh, you, know, you know, when we think of cos- cosmology, there's also... Cosmogony or cos, you know, the, the creation stories. Uh, when we get into pagan sources throughout the world, uh, order is established through conflict. In other words, there's some, you know, they think about the, you know, the Olympians and the Titans, you know, you think about, you know, the fact that what you have is chaos uh, and it's only after conquest that you have order established. So you could say kind of like the primordial state of affairs, uh, you know, originally is chaos in, in the sense of agonistics, you know, agony, you know, conflict, agonistics, which has been recovered in the scientism of Darwinism, mm-hmm. where order is established through conflict. But the Hegel, Christian vision... Yeah, and Darwin got it, yeah, yeah, Hegel right? as well. Right, yeah. and the Christ, but the Christian vision is of you know ex nihilo, nihilo, you know, out of nothing, by you know a God who brings into being and then orders things, and so the original pattern there is, is a, a peaceableness. Right, there's a peaceableness is what you know a lot of uh, a lot of theologians like to talk about ontology of peace, but yeah, there is grounded. Uh, a, you know, you could also even say a, a, a God in beatitude, right? in a state of being. And so creation ex nihilo is exactly opposite. And so even when you have the formlessness and void, what some often think of as, as conflict, we're dealing with undifferentiated being. We're not dealing with a, a conflictual primordial state that God's wrestling into form. And it's actually, you, you see, uh, uh, as one theologian once said, it, the same way in which the, the word is eternally breathed forth from the Father, right? Um, effortlessly, so is the speech at which the creation is summoned 
into order and form. And you see yeah. that sort of in the Genesis text, but that, that is fundamental to how Christianity in its most primitive understanding of reality is, is a complete different offering than what you have going on behind the stories of each of these, um, these uh, traditions. Yeah, and I bring that up uh, because so often, at least in my limited experience, so I'm, I'm not saying that I have any authority in this subject. It's just you know casual observation. But it seems like, from what I've seen, that there's a kind of beatitude that these folks believe can only be achieved by the recovery of these agonistic religions <laughs> that yeah, are no. based on conflict. Well, the interesting thing is if you actually look at the trajectory of Norse mythology, I don't remember the theogony. I don't remember exactly where the gods come from, but I do remember that it begins with a cow who Mm -hmm. is licking ice. And as it licks ice out of this emerges, I think it's the first man. Okay, so what we're seeing here is not creation ex nihilo, uh, like all creation stories except Genesis, you've got a story of the origin of the gods too. Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. But the thing that's, that I find particularly striking about the Norse is that not only is this long-standing struggle between the gods and the frost giants a fundamental fact of reality in the here and now, but ultimately, the entire world is going to be destroyed in a conflict. The gods themselves will be killed. And this, there will be, uh, some people will be preserved that will survive and will start the next world. And, but interesting there, because here you have the continued expression of, as we were talking about, the original ontology. It's conflict mm-hmm. is the future, conflict. And although even in the Christian understanding there is conflict until the fullness of things bring comes to consummation but then there is the peace be still peaceableness shalom is is the final state and it's not a final state because conflict is the 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 reality that brings about the peaceableness it's that conflict is the reality that needs to die and it dies because of a higher peaceableness actually transcends it and 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 permeates it and then then brings it to perfection and so so it's interesting um it, because the reason i mention it is because i do think there is driving in hegel marx and all of these strands that borrow a lot of capital off of Christianity, some of this conflictual ontology that owes itself to the roots of, of this kind of paganism that, um, that finds itself expressed, I think, in, in Western thought in particular, and maybe is attractive in many ways and can actually easily latch on to a neo-paganism because, um, because they share this kind of conflictual understanding of reality and its future. Well, which, which you know, in, in an odd sort of way, if you take a look even at something like critical theory, it's based on the idea that, that what society consists of is conflict. It's the people, it's the haves versus the have-nots. Right. Yeah, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, there is a kind of naivete within Christian circles. We see it a lot. 
uh, a kind of wishful thinking on the one hand, but also a kind of strange utopian uh, kind of magical thinking that, um, you know, obviously what we have in scriptures, we have, uh, you know, uh, prophets who are condemning evil, right? And, and that's uh, something that is part of the Christian, you know, corpus of, of scripture. But th- this has sort of uh, been rec- sort of uh, repurposed. You know, like when, you think of, when I think about Marx, I think about a guy who was uh, really a guy who wanted to be a prophet, but was born in the wrong century. <laughs> you know, he dressed like a prophet. He behaved like a, a prophet. He even <laughs> failed to bathe like a prophet. He was, he was just, you know, he was just, you know. And uh, uh, I think that uh, there's a, kind of romance to atheistic humanism. Um, in fact, uh, who, who wrote that? Wasn't it, wasn't there a book that was, uh, that it was entitled something like that? I think it was by Peeper. Does that ring a bell? Anybody? Huh. Interesting. I'll, I'll have to try to dig it up at, at some, for a future show. <laughs> yeah. oh, that would be good. I think it's yeah. the romance of atheistic humanism or something like hmm. that. And, uh, but the appeal is sort of the, I think the appeal is what Plato was getting at, or, you know, using Socrates as his mouthpiece when he was criticizing, uh, poets and their ability to make the bad sweet, you know, you know, sort of, he was, you know, Plato was concerned, uh, with the power of art to make, uh, morally, um, really bad things look and smell and sound good. Mm. And it seems like that's kind of what goes on with this. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that the Hebrew, the standard Hebrew greeting is shalom. You know, the, mm-hmm. the constant wish, the, 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 except the greeting is peace. And, the, and this is a piece that goes way beyond just absence of conflict, of course. It's sort of a holistic term that refers to uh, everything that's necessary for human flourishing. Um, you know, so what you see is, you know, right there in the very, this is a, a philologist, a philological approach, Tolkien, I think, might have appreciated what you see there is, uh, even in the language itself, a fundamental orientation toward peace as opposed to, well, conflict, as opposed to the other kinds of virtues that show up in the, uh, even the greetings in other languages. Yeah. Well, I think, too, that you know, within the Christian faith, the Judeo-Christian tradition, authority, order, uh, and peace are all working together for human flourishing. Uh, whereas in, uh, you know, these agonistic systems that are conflictual, you have these things pitted against each other so that, um, you know, like the old, like the bumper sticker question authority, which, by the way, whenever I see that bumper sticker, I say, says who? <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but, the, but the premise there is that uh, authority essentially is questionable. Not, not, 
this particular authority might be wrong, but that authority itself should be brought into question. <coughs> and what that leads to, of course, is uh, a state of nature, as you know, Hobbes would say, in which you know we have a, a war of all against all. Even in, even at home, you know, sleeping with the enemy, that feminist sort of yeah. trope. You know, the idea that, you know, your, your, your mate, your husband is your enemy. Yeah. And it's, I, th I think it stems also, I mean, right, you know, at the heart of the Christian understanding is, is that they, they need to, to find, well, they have a hard time with the issue of sin, period, except for when it is actually exercised in ways that places limits in some way. Or, or abuses um, kind of certain kind of distinctions that that power orders itself around in in any given social setting, and so <laughs> power becomes the core issue, um, and and I think this is where we have mainly pagan and neo pagan ways of interpreting power, and 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 um, I mean we just got through the Passion Week and Easter. And you have a phenomenal set and range of insights given by Christ and his relationship to the world and its fallen state, the way power is ordered. And, and I think one of the most um, insightful moments, of course, is when Pilate <laughs> and, and Jesus, who is his, his basically, you know, almost in, you know, the most dramatic moment is, is having to undergo <laughs> um, power that has been fully granted to the creature exercising it over the one who has fully granted it in some ways. And he's sitting here, you have no power to do this except for my father in heaven granting it to you. So what you have is this, this phenomenal insight that God grants within the fallen conditions of the world, but in such a way that they do not transcend God's saving, redemptive, consuming, peaceable purposes granted sin to have a place in exercising power it, it, there's this play going on because you have basically fallen power that has been completely granted by god becomes the very vehicle in which christ ends up submitting overcoming and transcending and yet through as scripture says, his foolishness compared to the world's wisdom and his powerlessness compared to the world's power transcends it, overcomes it, and actually brings this peaceableness to, to a people and to the creation. So you have this huge interplay going on that hardly any of those Christians who want to run towards critical theory or worldly understandings of power and its conflict draw upon. You don't get any of the richness going on there. What you get is the, the very simplistic, you have a little more power over me, therefore it's illegitimate. There's sin involved in it. You haven't perfectly exercised that power. Therefore, I need to question every order of creation because every order of creation has been stained by the abuse of power. That's not the way Christ dealt with it. It's not the way Christianity overcomes it. And none of that gets included in the, in the reflections that go on in, in most church talks about right. the issues and, of society and power. If there's anybody who should be able to, to use that, of course, it's, it's us. You know, uh, the mystery has been revealed that's been, you know, 
hidden from the foundation of the world. This is this is the the insight yeah. that we yeah. have in Christ through death and resurrection. Yeah. So, Glenn, I know you want to jump in here. Yeah. The interesting thing is bringing it back to heathenry for a moment. They actually get a lot of this. Yeah. Um, they are very. They, it tends to be a very patriarchal religion. Um, it's a religion in which there is a recognition of systems of authority, particularly within the household. The household is central to the heathen vision of the world. It is, um, you know, it is, they recognize it as the most fundamental element uh, of society and even it, in uh, religious terms of their religion. Uh, they have a very traditional ideas or they tend to have very traditional ideas modified somewhat in some, particularly in Northern Europe, of, uh, of gender roles. Uh, and they see this as part of the natural ordering of the universe. Uh, they don't have a problem with authority. They don't have a problem with, with uh, questioning authority or power or any of those kinds of things because they recognize them as things that are fundamental in society and that are necessary. Um, I'd like to meet some of these people. And, and the interesting <laughs> thing is, you know, if, if you look at what they argue, now they do reject the idea of sin. They do reject original sin and all that. They say, you know, you're responsible for your own actions. There's no, there's no guilt that you need to atone for or anything like that. They do reject the idea of sin. Uh, but for the most part, they, 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 they stick it in in a few places. But the, the virtues that they advocate are things like courage, um, strength, self-sacrifice, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of things that, well, the Romans would have recognized as virtue, certainly, as would the Greeks, as would pretty much any traditional society, especially any warrior society. And there aren't any of them on the list. There, there are nine virtues that they come up with out of the, uh, the Eddas from Iceland. There are none of them on the list that we as Christians would disavow. Right. Well, so, this brings back, so this there brings is back. an element of truth that they're dealing with here, and they're missing some really fundamental things, but there are things about it that echo reality. Tom, you wanted to say something? Well, and, and also, I mean, from, from especially even some of the neo-pagan expressions, there, there also tends to be this attraction to the organic nature of it. it mm -hmm. It's um, even if, they come at it from a, you know, post-enlightenment. There's a buffer there shaped by certain Christian ethics. Um, and there is a sort of conscious appropriation of it. Like, it's, you know, it's just like a second naivety. It's, you know, maybe the second, third generation is not like that. But the, the ones that would, you know, move to it and embrace it is something of that nature. But there is this kind of, I mean, it, you know, here's a crass example. But I, I often think, being, have a little music background, is the rock band Led Zeppelin, right? I mean, Led Zeppelin was somebody very attracted to this world. I mean, you have their music, they write about the Hobbit and things like that. But you had, didn't they do, uh, didn't they do immigrant song? Was that yes. well, the immigrant song yes. about returning to Odin in that raw power, right? Of, of mm -hmm. you know, the hammer of the gods. There's, there's an excellent example. So they, they sort of take modern tech technology, the loud amplification, and take that raw energy and try to tap into that natural raw energy. And I, and I think that's, that's one of the things that, you know, um, what, what, you know, something that offers a kind of new tension in, in the music, rock music world. Um, but then you also had them, you know, uh, like Jimmy Page, the guitarist, was very attracted to Aleister Crowley. I think he bought his actual mansion, didn't it? Um, oh, yeah, you had yeah. Them, 
Yeah, they, they had all this stuff going okay. on there, but they were not trying to become, you know, Satanists. They were, they were something completely different. Mm -hmm. Quick note, Aleister Crowley is a ceremonial magician, developed a whole lot of theories about magic, started multiple organizations, and a lot of his ideas are at the root of Wicca, for those of you who aren't familiar with mm. it. Now, I, I want to think a little bit, I want to take this in a different direction a little bit. Um, as you guys know, I, I have, uh, you know, some, some stuff I've written that appeals to young men. And because of that, I've been, uh, you know, there have been guys in the alt-right, particularly in sort of the, the, you know, the men's movement, you know, sort of manosphere who've reached out to me over time. And uh, I've, I've had some, you know, good interactions with them. Uh, let me give you a, a couple of examples. There was a, there was a young man who, uh, and, and I think this is fairly uh, common. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of, I think, misunderstanding about some of these guys in the alt-right. And the misunderstanding is that, is that these guys are kind of like good old boys from the South that don't like the way things are going in the world. Oh, no. No, no. Actually, what, the, what they tend to be is they tend to be uh, young men who were raised in liberal environments and are reacting to that. So there, here's an example. There's a young man, I'll, I'll leave him nameless, but I'll reference one of his books. So if you really want to find out who he is, you can find out. But uh, he, uh, he, he was uh, raised by, he, his, his mother and his father were both cultural anthropologists and worked, uh, were professors, PhDs hmm. in the University of California. So in the system there. So he uh, was raised in this very, you know, you could say woke environment. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, <laughs> uh, and as you can imagine, you know, he didn't lack for, you know, uh, you know, stuff to think about, you know, uh, with, with parents like that. He actually was a, a delegate, an Obama delegate to the Democratic National Convention from, really? his, from his area in Southern California. Anyway, so his... His uh, bona fides are, you know, you know, unquestioned. <laughs> they're, they're like, you know, and so he knows everything. So, so then he traveled the world. He made the mistake <laughs> of actually going out <laughs> and seeing things outside the West. And he came back and he said, and he actually, he, read, he wrote a book entitled Fist Fights with Muslims in Europe, <laughs> which kind of tells you, the awakening. So he became a red pill guy, became a oh, wow. big thing in the, in the manosphere and in the alt-right. And he reached out to me and actually reviewed one of my books, very, very, uh, you know, gave a very positive review to Man of the House. And, uh, you know, we interacted a bit and I talked to him about Christianity and basically he was completely turned off to Christianity. Mm. And the stuff that he was turned off with was sort of mainstream megachurch evangelicalism. Yeah. That's that was his impression of Christianity, too commercial, too effeminate, too touchy feely. What he wanted was uh, something that had power and mystery and depth. Anyway, uh, he's one of the guys that I that I interacted with. Another guy I've interacted with is a guy named Jack Donovan. Now, Jack Donovan is you know you guys I'm sure you two guys maybe have, uh, remember me talking about him or maybe you've encountered him before, but Donovan. Uh, was an artist living in Manhattan and a homosexual. 
And now he is one of the leaders of sort of the alt-right men's movement. His book is, has been, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of his book, uh, you know, uh, have been, uh, you know, published and purchased and so forth. And he's a guy who, uh, you know, is into, you know, automatic weapons <laughs> and basically, you know, he's, 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 he's looking forward to the day when all hell breaks loose. Because that'll be the day that men will be able to be able to exercise their manly virtues once again, you know, sort of their mm. raw virtues and all this nonsense with regard to, you know, the uh, you know, social justice warriors and stuff will just all just sort of dissipate and be gone and we can get back to a world in which men can be themselves. And what I what I what I'm getting at here is there's something in neo-paganism for both those guys because they're both into you know you know sort of uh, norse stuff uh that draws them that they can't or they don't think they can find within the christian tradition any thoughts on that well you know you're you've got a description right there of the norse ideals you know, in, in a lot of ways, if you look up the nine virtues in, in heathenry, which, it, which aren't accepted by everybody, there are a number of them that say that this is a pale imitation of the Ten Commandments, so we don't want to have anything to do with it. But for a lot of them, they, you know, they, they will agree whether or not they accept this as sort of creedal or, or an ethical statement, they'll agree with the ideals. And things like courage, strength, uh, fortitude, um, endurance, uh, you know, uh, prowess. These are things that are valued within that world. And, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you get a lot of people in the manosphere who really uh, are attracted to that because it is exactly those kinds of virtues that are promoted in heathenry that are vilified in contemporary American culture but that I think are things that men frequently tend to gravitate toward. And I would, I would argue, Glenn, that, he, that, that they're even uh, demonized. Demonized, yeah. In Christian circles. And I'm, I'm, I'm putting scare quotes on Christian there. <laughs> because I, I, I think that what we've got here, you know, when I think of, you know, the kind of guy I'm thinking about the sort of mainstream evangelical preacher boy, you know, who uh, wants to make sure that everybody's happy all the time and he keeps the, the butts in the, in the theater seats because they're so leveraged to have, you know, because they built this enormous, you know, entertainment complex. <laughs> but you get what I'm getting at. You, you know, it's interesting. There was in the 19th century, there's a movement referred to as muscular Christianity. It's really at the root of the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association. Um, and interestingly enough, it continues to survive. I know a number of guys who are professional performing strongmen. And without question, every one of them is a committed Christian. These are the kinds of guys who bend railroad spikes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I actually have an, a number uh, yeah. of very nails that these guys have bent for me. You um, know, you one, know, one of the things that prompted That still exists. One of the things that prompted my comment here was this idea that we don't have any resources to draw on 
when we do. Um, uh, the Arthurian literature, for example, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. is suffused with Christian uh, content. And what made me think about this is my daughter is taking a course right now in Arthurian literature at, at Grove City College, and she was assigned the movie The Natural yes. to watch. Now I saw I had, your post on this. Yeah, I had never made the connection between the Arthurian legend and the film The Natural. But when you, when you know that's what's going on, Bernard Malamud is the guy who wrote it, was a Jew <laughs> and kind of a Kafka <laughs> kind of disciple. Uh, but uh, the, the film apparently is much more upbeat than the book. I've never read the book. But uh, in the film, when you, when you know this, you can see it all over the place. And uh, Roy Hobbs, Roy means king. King. Right? Yeah. And so Roy Hobbs, uh, his moral purity is directly connected to his baseball prowess. Throughout the film, whenever his, whenever he compromises, whenever he uh, sins, he loses. There's a very direct connection there. And at the very end of the film, if you remember the way the film ends, you know, it's the bottom of the ninth, you know, they're down, you know, two runs and he, you know, Roy Hobb gets up to bat, you know, he strikes, strike, and then the third time he hits it out and he hits it, he hits it so so uh, magnificently it actually hits the, the the light array, you know, above the stadium. It's just, it knocks it, you know, it's that powerful and then it completely shatters the entire lettering. And so the all the all the electrical lights in the entire stadium are bursting in flames <laughs> as he's rounding the bases. <laughs> but but I mean that that that's you know the Arthurian material is you know you mentioned Beowulf as a Christian work. Yeah. I don't know if many people would make that connection, but I know what you're getting at. And it, it's 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 interesting because I, I I've often told you know, students and, and different people that, that kind of aware of contemporary situations and attractions. And I said that, you know, you, you're going to come to a point, and I'm using this heuristically, where it's Christ or Nietzsche um, mm -hmm. for the, this world. Uh, Nietzsche recognized, and he, he's worth reading in relationship to theological analysis about his understanding of power and, and, and culture and in the interrelation of our kind of, you know, natural dance to reality, as he understood it. Um, but one of the things he, he, he criticized first, the Jew, but the Christian being a kind of form of, of Judaism in his mind, was what he called this, the kind of slave revolt. It, it, it tamed the beast, that raw energy and power that, that we have. Um, and so his whole call was the ubermensch, right? The, the over, Lord, that one that, you know, beyond good and evil in the Christian sense, that, that carry, utilize its power the way it saw fit to, 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 you know, tapping into Darwin to, to not just survive, but to, to over, you know, to, to almost be in a, in a sense, a, a Lord yeah, of being, creator. if you will. Well, yeah, yeah yes. the, the Ubermensch was the guy who, in the face of the recognition that there is no objective meaning or reality or anything else in the universe creates it out of whole cloth and presents such a compelling vision that he draws everybody else with him. 
That's right. And is undeterred by this slave psychology that right. Christianity brought in. It's the weaker being, being, yeah, the weak and, and weak. But see, what Nietzsche misses, although he was attracted to it in, in Christianity, and in a sense, I think he was trying to, to make a, a, um, a competitive vision to it, um, was that, that there was a, a, kind of, a, a, a kind of flip side power that Christianity was able to work through that his vision would have never been able to work through. You know, he was trying to. And, and real Christianity, um, not sort of the caricature that he presented, um, is related to the same virtues, but in a very different way. And I, I think really that's why the significance of kind of contemporary Christian moral reflection on these in a serious way, the classic virtues in relation to the, the gospel and, and Christian vision. I mean, notice one thing. It's the gospel that is moved forward, the reconciliation of God and humanity, the consummation of all things, the kingdom of God. Um, that is exercised to a power that isn't human. It's, it, 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 it's, humans are called to participate in it as, as instruments, as servants in, in, in the church, for example. Um, this is something that no human virtue in and of itself has the capacity to do. I, can't, I cannot kind of muster up through certain natural dispositions the ability, for example, to, to preach the gospel better. I may have a great voice, I may not. I may be ugly, I may be handsome. Those things are not necessarily, I mean, God can use them, but those are not the, there's not a, a constitutive factor about those things that makes the gospel go forth weaker or stronger. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's something we don't have control over. And so there is a sense in which we look foolish, we look weak, because we recognize that in relationship to the gospel, we have no um, contributive factor. That doesn't mean there aren't virtues that are consistent with it. I think the gospel forms virtues that help to, to, to work that through. But what it means is, is that we are, we're instrumental in this case. Um, but that does not say that these other virtues have no place. Nor does it mean that these other virtues that, that these people are attracted to do not have a kind of region and realm in which they should be exercised, not denied, pushed away, or suppressed. And I think that is where the contemporary Christian situation is. It wants to say, oh, because the gospel is such that, you know, you can't muster up a certain set of dispositions out of your own kind of habitus, habits, right? You, you, don't, you don't develop this kind of dispositions that make make um, the power of God, you know, you have control over the power of God. That's very different than whether or not you're a, you're, you have the dispositions and character to, to um, you know, discern moral judgments in a particular way, one way or another, or courage, or, you know, it, uh, I, I was just, I teach a class on Christian pe uh, war and peace. There's an actual book on Orthodox Christianity called The Virtual War. Right, there are virtues in war that that the, the dispositions of the gospel can complement, but they are not directly related to. If so, you've actually crushed your family and killed your society. So I think this is a whole range of things that the Christians haven't really had to think about because we've been in in, in a lot of a, a very peaceable world in many ways, and and therefore we take them for granted. Anyway, it was a lot there. I'll shut up. <laughs>
<laughs> no, I think that's, that's really rich stuff, Tom. That's great stuff. Thanks. Yeah, the, the place where I go with this is actually, well, true confessions. I used to be a Kung Fu instructor. Oh, and, uh, uh-uh. and, oh, and the, uh, the, the interesting talk? thing here <laughs> is that in Chinese martial arts, you can divide them up a couple of different ways, but one of them is hard styles versus soft styles. And a lot of that has to do with how you block and the number of things of that sort. Um, but you can also do internal versus external. There's a bunch of ways of doing it. The heathen approach is really hard and external. It is very much based on power, you know, strength, all of those kinds of things. By analogy, Christianity is a soft style. It approaches power through a totally different lens. Um, It sees power found in softness and self-sacrifice in uh, a whole host of things of that sort, rather than in just the crude exercise of force. You know what this reminds me of is uh, Bruce Lee. Yeah, and in in Chinese martial arts, it's actually the soft styles are the ones that are considered the most effective and the most sophisticated, but also the most difficult to master. You know, I, I had a fascinating, uh, I saw a fascinating documentary about Bruce Lee. Uh, his, he's actually, you know, not entirely Chinese. He's got German roots. And uh, he, uh, so I think he's, I don't know if he's like 25% German or what, but, but basically, you know, he, he kind of saw himself as kind of the meeting place between East and West in his own person. And, uh, you know, he's a, he was a, a, a great student of philosophy he his library apparently had a lot of plato and aristotle as well as you know you know you know eastern uh you know you know thinkers and all of those guys yeah but i remember one time he was he was talking about you know his fighting style he's like you want to be water (laughs) (laughs) the water (laughs) fills the glass it has no shape it has no form it takes whatever form is required in the moment. <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of a fascinating and sort water of will erode a rock. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. yeah. So anyway, the, 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 the point here is that again, comparing, you know, jumping off of what Tom was saying, my analogy goes to, to uh, Kung Fu, but um, the, the analogy I think holds because what the heathens do is they see strength, and power and all of those things found in the external. Whereas in Christianity, it's Jesus's self-sacrifice that becomes the paradigm for what true power really is. It's not found in, you know, exerting force. It's not found in establishing an earthly kingdom. It's not found in kicking the Romans out of Judea. It's found in self-sacrifice for your sins through which you actually defeat all the forces of evil, but you do it not by confronting them directly, but by sacrificing yourself. It's a totally different way of looking at power, looking at victory and everything else. And like I said, like the Chinese martial arts, it's the soft power that ends up being the most sophisticated and the one that wins in the long run. But, but 
isn't it true though that there is a place for the hard power there is a time for that see and i think that's this is the thing that a lot of guys uh are you know they'll be able to say i get your point glenn and i get the point about the soft power thing but you know the you know um there is something to the hard power that god made yes in other words, when we talk about hard power, we're not talking about the devil's works. No. So, so what I think we need is, I think we need an apologetic for hard power within the Christian faith. Yeah, that, that was exactly kind of, I didn't express it that clearly, but that was kind of what I was on to, is, is, is we need to think through with the riches and resources we have, the proper place of hard power and what its ends are, but also how it can be enacted in a way that's complement, complement, mm. you know, it complements um, and, what we're given in the gospel. And, and that's why I was talking about, for example, the Orthodox understanding the virtue of war, right? Mm. Here you have yeah, people sure. that com- committed to the gospel, the gospel of peace, but also the recognition that here is a place at which that gospel people committed to that gospel has a hard power form. And so, yeah, now, what, the, yeah. Th- this takes me two places. First of all, again, in Chinese martial arts, eventually the hard styles and the soft styles merge. <laughs> if you take a hard style far enough, you get into a soft style and vice versa. Um, and I've been hit by people using the soft style approach that the internal techniques and things like that. And let me tell you, it, it's, It'll lock you on your butt. It's incredible. Well, and, and I oh, go ahead. But but here's the thing. Think about think about um, C.S. Lewis out of the Silent Planet. One of the things that always struck me is that when he's with the first group, I forgot what they're called. The first group that that he encounters on Mars. One of the things that happens is what I can only describe as a shark hunt. This this um, sea creature like a shark comes up the river and all of this group are really excited because they're going to go out and they are going to hunt this thing. Mm. In the process of doing it, some of them die. And they consider this a good and positive thing because it's courage, it's virtue, therefore, it's you know, it's, it's prowess. I mean, uh, the ransom ends up being the one who actually kills the thing, and he's given a title for doing it, um, and so on. So, so what, what Lewis is pointing to there is that even in an unfallen world, people die, and there are tragedies and things like that, but there's still a place for virtue and courage. And, and I think um, one of the things I think that, that clears the way with a Christian understanding is, first of all, omnipotence, which is pure, perfect power, if you will, God, um, is non-competitive, which means that what looks like weakness to us is hard power. What looks like it's a, you know, a giving over to the, the world is actually the reverse. And so communicating that, is, is really the hard part, part of the unpacking the gospel. But what you see in Christ, the death of in death in the death of Christ, that mm-hmm. in what looks like his weakness, his submitting to the powers that be, his power is actually revealing the weakness of worldly power. It can't keep him down. Its death was founded in putting him to death. And so, yeah, yeah I, I get that, Tom. But what I'm getting at is, okay, there's a time 
for me to kill the animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, uh, there is a time to kill. Yeah, sure. And I guess that's what I'm getting at. I, I, now, I think that most of the uh, people that I have in mind who would recoil at that very thought yeah. uh, are not the people I'm talking about. The people I'm talking about are the guys who can kill, yeah. who know it's necessary to kill. And have no place in sort of popular evangelical ways of thinking for what they know is necessary. So they've got a, yeah, they've got a, a, a conceptual conflict because what they've been told is that Christian power is only self-sacrifice, is only soft yeah. power. Well, it's yeah. never yeah. killing. Well, that's where the blur, that was kind of my point a little bit earlier. That's where they blurred that which is in relationship to the purposes of the kingdom and that which is also related to the enactment of our creatureliness and confines of its fallen condition until full consummation, right? I'm not going to have to 3,000 fish, for example, necessarily in, in eternity, right? <laughs> uh, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But my point is, is that I do need to do that now, right? Um, what is the first thing Jesus cooks up on shore when he's resurrected, right? Fish, right? There is a killing, which is good. There's an enactment of, of power in creation towards certain things that have been part of the fabric of our, our creaturely well-being, right? Fish, for example, and the celebration of it that are apart and inconsistent with the resurrection. Resurrected Christ eats a killed, cooked fish. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is taking it out of the Christian realm, and I think this is a good illustration of the kind of thing that, that you're pointing to. If you look at the left versus the right and the potential of violence on the two sides, um, your hard left and your hard right, your, your hard left um, to quote a, a guy that actually has studied this stuff, your hard left is really into quantity. Okay, So you get riots, you get things like that. Your hard right is into quality. What is going to happen if the hard right goes to violence is you're going to get a very high body count. It'll be something like the Murrow Federal Building. It will be something like you know, uh, you know, a a you know mass uh, uh, you know explosion at a concert or like the shooting in Las Vegas or something like that. The left is going to go around and beat people up in a riot, or try to, or try to. <laughs> they, they will have a much higher quantity of violence. But the right will have a much higher quality of violence. Well, remember, just so folks know what, what you're referring to with the Murrow Federal Building, and this is a very good example. So what we have at Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City. Uh, so, you know, in terms of ingenuity, let's think about this for a moment. Here's a guy who would be very much part of the manosphere sort of alt-right world today. Of course, he predates that. Mm -hmm. But here is a guy who was able to do the research required 
to figure out how to turn fertilizer that you could buy just about anywhere you wanted to buy anything that helps you grow food into a bomb, a bomb so powerful that he could just simply leave the, leave the truck on the street in front of the building and completely blow off the entire facade of the building and kill many people. That's the kind of ingenuity that these guys are capable of. You know, your, your, your typical, you know, feminist, uh, you know, gender studies gal, she wouldn't guy. have any Poor guy. Uh, yeah, Poor guy. They, wouldn't, they wouldn't have any clue where to begin, let alone the wherewithal to actually carry that out. Now, yeah. what 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 that gets me to, and again, I, I keep returning to this. In order to kill something, you need to harden yourself. You need to turn something off. Empathy yeah. needs to be shut down in order to kill. And that is something that makes no sense within the framework of popular, you know, evangelical sort of sentimentalism. But until we're able to say, even this can be ordered to the good, then the sort of guy that I'm talking about will not find anything in Christianity appealing. Yeah. And they will find the more extreme versions of heathenry appealing. Yeah, yeah. Those, by the way, typically go by the name of Odinism or Wotanism or variations on that. That's the specific branch of heathenry that tends to head in that that much more white supremacist direction. Well, it goes in any masculine group. Mm -hmm. And we could be talking about black Muslims, for example. Sure. So, you know, what I think, you know, what, what are the percentages of men who are capable of this sort of thing? I think they're higher than people assume because I think a lot of guys keep their mouths shut because they're in corporations and they don't want to lose their job. But I would say it may be as high as 40 to 50% of men are capable of this sort of thing. And maybe 20% actually find it attractive. Mm-hmm. Maybe my numbers are even low. Yeah. And the, and the thing about all of this is that Christianity, again, we have to have a place. There's a reason why God made people the way he did. And while there are, in no matter which direction you go, whether you're on the left or the right, whether you're violent or, or whatever, <laughs> whether you have propensities in those directions, there are ways that are unfallen that can incorporate those characteristics. I mean, you know, the the fact of the matter is there are predators in the world and we need sheepdogs. You know, so there's a place for all of this within a balanced biblical understanding of the world. Um, But you're right, the kind of uh, sentimentalism that pervades evangelicalism is doesn't really recognize that so effectively. And when it does, it does things like have a men's group that watches the UFC. (laughs) (laughs) And that that really isn't it. It's that sort of goofiness that these guys recoil from. They despise. Exactly. Exactly. And so what we need to do is to, you know, I would argue in response to the heathens out there, 
um, and again, using that as a technical term, the kind of thing that you've been talking about for years, Chris, is recovering a biblical idea of masculinity that turns away from the feminization of Christianity and affirms a place for strength and power and assertiveness and for sheepdogs. Yeah, we should probably wrap things up. I can, I can tell Tom you got some things you want to say. Go ahead. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I mean, I mean, and I don't want to go far into them. I think it's a good topic, probably, to return to. I mean, I, you know, especially some of these themes, the relationship of certain kinds of virtues to you know distinct faith, hope, and love. So if we were relating faith, hope, and love to the classic virtues of war. Um, things like that. I mean, I actually think that topic, maybe it'll be one I, I hit on next, next time mm-hmm. is my run is that whole engaging the Orthodox tradition on the virtues of war, but from evangelical dispositions, because I think this really needs to be unpacked. I think people don't know. And I, you know, I can say that it, it is kind of initial in my own thinking. I, I understand the worldview issues. I understand the complexity of the moment, but I really think something has not been properly delved into in that kind of space the place at which you know certain virtues um, are able to be fully exhibited especially those attracted to in in, in terms of the utilization of of a certain power we've been given Um, and not not to be interpreted in a sentimental way but actually to be fully embraced but fully fully embraced with our loves oriented the right way and 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 that's really the you know the complexity of it is right there is how do I exercise a certain kind of um, you know a certain kind of manliness if you will in a way that I'm also watering my loves the right way but on the other hand that I'm not undermining all those good gifts of my own manliness and 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 power to exercise them in these distinct kinds of ways that's controversial talk I don't care. But that, I mean, I think that's where things need to go and actually in, in order to, to look at the way in which our creaturely natures, those things filled in Christ, not undermined by, by the word. So Glenn, do you want to say anything as you wrap up? Uh, yeah, we've gone into all kinds of different directions that I had never anticipated. It's been fun. <laughs> Great. You know, I was, I was looking at uh, Matthew uh, Dickerson's uh, reflections on our, his time with us, and he said, it completely surprised me, but it was actually like a, f- a conversation and not just like, you know, the standard interview of, you know, bullet points being, you know, uh, you know, you know, worked through, you know, there was actually dialogue. <laughs> and, you did, and of course, when you got dialogue, you don't know where you're going to end up. Right. Yeah, and I suppose what I would say in wrap-up is that there are a lot of negative things that we can point to within within the heathen tradition, certainly particularly the white racism and things like that that show up. But they have grabbed hold of certain things that are true, that do fit with the nature that God has put within us. And we, if we're going to respond effectively to that, we need to recognize the truths that they did actually grab hold of by common grace and understand how, as Christians, we can respond and incorporate those ideas in our own faith. That's a, that's a great thought to end with. Anyway, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast, folks. We are, you know, 
operating virtually, as you know, and uh, we're looks like we're going to be doing that for a while now, <laughs> at least uh, three or four more weeks. But eventually, we'll actually be together again, and that'll be great when that happens. But thank you for being with us. Thank you for your interest in what we do. Uh, bye-bye. Bye now.